Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who just wants to go somewhere where everybody knows his name. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and yeah, you know, I want everyone to know my name. That's why I went on Fox News this week to uh, be on Fox News. You didn't even get your name said, though, did you? They said my first name. I wasn't about oh, well, to, that's good. That's I wasn't going to give them my last name. And then there's no plausible deniability. Or and there's also a really actually. decent chance that you'll get like something terrible in the mail. Also, yeah. a possibility, yeah. along with every other Adam Glass in the Columbus phone book. Right. Um, for context, there, I, uh, I this week as a recording, uh, woke up early to go to Fox News. Uh, I found out they'd be broadcasting live from a local restaurant uh, to uh, interview people about their responses to the Democratic national debate in Columbus. Uh, this past Tuesday, as of recording. This is a month and a half ago by the time this posts, but yes. Um, but I ended up, I had gone there to observe uh, just the whole process, and uh, there were not a lot of people there, so they ended up asking me to be on the 7.30 segment. Uh, after At that point, I'd been there for three hours, and uh, running on about a, that much sleep, and had drunk so much coffee, and I do not normally drink coffee, and I could feel my soul vibrate. Um, so I ended up actually talking about, uh, unclear what I wanted to talk about, even up until the point where they told me I was on air. I ended up talking about a woman named Edith Espinal, who's been living in sanctuary here in Columbus, at the Columbus Mennonite Church, um, facing deportation for the last two years. Uh, she's been a resident of Columbus for 20 years. She's got three kids who are U.S. citizens, but she's facing deportation, uh, so I talked about her on Fox News, and it was great. Uh, but there was someone, actually, you know, my what brings this to mind was my reticence to, to say my full name on uh, Fox News. There was someone who was concerned that I had said Edith Espinal's full name on Fox News. Uh, and uh, she's been in public sanctuary for two years. Like, the New York Times has written about her. <laughs> well, I mean, I think even a couple politicians at yes. least tweeted about her. Yes. Like, in the Elizabeth past, Warren so. and Bernie... Sanders have tweeted about about her her in the last week. Uh, Julian Castro met with her on Tuesday and had a press conference afterward. So, like, she's, yeah. Yeah, it's not exactly in hiding. Right, Uh, right. In fact, ICE is actively punishing her for not being in hiding. They sent her a $500,000 fine. What? Yeah. What is that number? Yeah. Where the fuck did they cook that one up from? Apparently, uh... A subsection of the immigration code is that if you avoid deportation, they can uh, uh, fine you, in the words that I read, up to $500 a day. Of course, $500 times 600 days is not uh, $700. It's not $500,000. But, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, I mean, it's not like they're following any other rules and or anything else. So I guess, I mean, what's to stop them from just finding random numbers? Right. So, anyway. Yeah, it's uh, oh, it's bad, batshit and insane. we would yeah we would like for uh, Edith not to be separated from her family, and you know all sorts of all sorts of other people not to be separated from their families and sent yeah. back to dangerous places. Where, for instance, in Edith's hometown in Mexico, just this uh, I just saw a news post this month where uh, like a dozen police officers were murdered by gang violence. Uh, so yeah, it's not great. And, uh, you know, even even if her home in Mexico were not a dangerous place, her family is here and her home is here. 
Right. I mean, that I mean, yeah, yeah. I would I would prefer no one to be separated from their family by the right. by the government. That right. would be great. Right. Pretty cool. Anyway. So all all that uh that was my week this week and uh yeah, it was great. You're a celebrity yeah. and everybody does know your name. Actually, uh Bill Bill the other guy who was interviewed at the Democratic table. Uh I told them I was an independent, but Fox News is interested in accuracy. Uh Bill, the other guy at the Democratic table who was interviewed, he is he is the famous one this week because he was he was like three inches away from advocating we eat the rich on Fox News, and it was Beautiful. wonderful. Um. Before we get into the movie this week, I want to talk about our Patreon, patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. For just a dollar a month over there, you get access to a bonus episode. If you, you know, keep us uh-huh. going. You also get to vote on what episode we're going to watch. So we put together a little list, uh, usually four themed movies, and number five is always Kazam, uh, the Shaq starring children's movie from the 90s. Uh, we can hope. We can hold out hope that they'll let us watch it again. We have watched it. We have watched it once so far, but yeah, it's it's fun. We do, like I said, non-criterion films for our bonus episodes. We watch a lot of interesting films over there, a lot of terrible films, a lot of really great films that maybe should be in the Criterion collection over there. Uh, we've done uh, Ernest Goes to Camp. We've done Aliens. We've done uh, Monster Squad and uh, Ready Player One, and yeah. It's uh, Dog Day Afternoon, just a really eclectic mix yeah, of stuff. Yeah, a lot of, some good stuff, some real good stuff, and some yeah. real garbage, some real right. stinkers. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion if you want to support us in that regard, and we are very grateful to the people who do. So grateful, in fact, for the people who, uh, people who pledge a little bit more a month, we'd like to thank them on air. So thank you to Adam Speakerman for his continued $5 support. Um, a little above that, $10 and above a month, we do something uh, really great. Uh, Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently, and I write a thank you note. Uh, I get printed up on a postcard and write a thank you note to our $10 and above supporters, and we also like to thank those guys on air. If you like physical mail, uh, bespoke which art, you do, uh, which, which I know you do, you do uh, get it on that at $10 and above. It's uh, some really great stuff. But thank you to Jason Westhaber and Michael McGrath for your continued supports at that yes, level and very above. Much. Very uh very grateful to you guys. This week, we are talking about When a Woman Ascends the Stairs. Uh, 1960 Japanese drama directed by Mikio Narusa. No. No? Narusa. Yeah, you got the last name right, but you got the you got the first name wrong. So. Oh, no. I messed up Sorry. the first name this time. Mikio? Yeah, Mikio. 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 Narusa. Oh, there we go. Well, I I am. Uh, it is a long-standing. Uh, it's a tradition, really. Trope on Lost in Criterion that I cannot pronounce Japanese names explicitly, <laughs> and it's like, the only language I seem to have a consistent problem with. Is... Yeah, it, it. I don't know. For some reason, the 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 um, the pronunciation of the vowels always seems to get you. Yeah, yeah. It's I don't a, know. I, I again. I I said this in the past i really think i'm I'm trying to put spanish vowels in there for some reason i think so too yeah even I, though you, i you, even though i understand 
<laughs> you know, like when I say a French word, I don't put Spanish vowels in there. So I don't know what's what's wrong with my brain. So this is a this is a pretty interesting movie. Um, it co-stars Tatsuya Nakadai, uh, who is uh, someone we've seen before. Um, he's in he's in films all over. Uh, he was actually he was originally a stage actor, and because of that, he was outside of the studio system in Japan, uh, which meant he was not contracted to a specific studio and could work for any studio Anybody. and any director. Uh, so he's been in Kurosawa films. Uh, he's been in. Uh, uh, I mean, boy, has he been in a lot of films. Jiminy he was Christmas. in Okamoto's Kill and The Sword of Doom, two movies we've watched for yep. um, the Criterion Collection. He was in... Uh, he's in Ron. He's in Ron. Uh, he's in some uh, Ichikawa films and uh, Shiro Toyota films. Hideo uh, Gosha, Koyokin, uh, which I think we'll watch. I'm not I'm not entirely sure on that one, but we watched... Apparently, apparently he was in Seven Samurai as just a wandering <laughs> samurai. Yeah. I did not we've, know that. We've seen him in Samurai Rebellion, in Harikiri, in Kwaidon. Uh Yeah. He's... Uh, I mean, let's be clear. I'm looking at his filmography. He, in I'm looking at it. I'm scrolling through it. It's done by year. Yeah. Uh, he has done a film every year, literally at least one film every year since 1954. And I believe at least one film every year since 1954 that we have seen as part of the collection. <laughs> I'm looking. Uh, we will eventually watch The Human Condition, I believe. Uh, and that's 59. I. Uh, when a Woman Ascends the Stairs is this year, 1960, Yojimbo in 61, Sanjuro in 62, and Hari Kiri, uh, High and Low in 63, Quaidon in 64, uh, <laughs> Sword of Doom well, in 66. Took, took, yeah, he took some years off in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. But, There's a couple years in the in the 90s where there are no films. Yeah. Uh, boy, man. Yeah, no, he's he, prolific. Yeah. And he's... Not the main character of this movie. Let's be <laughs> no, very clear not. here. No, it's not. just this is just a side note. He's not even like the most. He's not even the most important male character in this movie. Also, true. even by a stretch. <laughs> uh, oh, arguably, he could have been if things had gone a little differently. Well, but. I mean, there. Let's be clear here. There are no fundamentally essential male characters in this film, in the right. sense that um, they are all supporting actors. Right. There are no. There's no lead male actor in this film, right. which is one of the things that highly recommends it. Yes. Is that it is whole cloth about our main, our, our leading uh, woman. woman. Uh, played it, by Hideko Takamine. Yeah. Takamine, uh, not Takamine. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Whatever I'm doing. <laughs> My brain. Yeah, I, well, you know, you, well, you definitely went for a silent E on there, which was right. great. Right. Um, uh, played by Hideko Takamine, uh, the main character. Uh, it is her story. It is uh, Keiko, yeah. uh, Mama Yashira. Uh, she is um, called Mama because she is a widow, an older woman, and by older woman we mean twenty nine. Well, uh, and also she falls she falls into a role which is very explicitly in Japanese culture, and especially yes. Japanese bar culture called Mama. Yes, yeah, she like is the the lead woman in a bar. Yeah. Is called Mama. That yeah. is their. That is literally their job title. Is right. Mama San, like Mom, Mrs. Mom. Yeah. Uh, now she is not. She is not the matron of the bar. Um, no, but it doesn't. That's not necessary. That's but, not necessary. Like 
you can be the owner and Mama-san, but you can be the Mama-san without being the owner. Yeah. The Mama-san is just the lead lady. She is the one who organizes all the women. Yeah. Like, because there's an owner who is a woman in this film, but she doesn't day-to-day organize the right. activities of the other women in the bar. Right. And that, that is, is the Mama-san's role. And that is the job. So there's a lot of reasons why she falls into that category. That is also usually the oldest woman in the bar and a lot of yeah. other things like that. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah. 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 So as Pat has said, she, she plays a hostess in a bar in Ginza. Uh, this movie is, is interesting in that regard because it bounced off, bounced back and forth between almost a documentary style, uh, portrayal of the hostess business in Ginza, yeah. uh, with, uh, with Keiko doing uh, voiceover about it. And and her actual narrative story, um, and then paused and read centered every so often as she ascends the stairs, as the title says, and muses philosophically about the state of her life as she uh, prepares herself to enter her right. work again. I mean the the way that her ascending the stairs. I mean, like obviously, like I mean, it's in the title and everything like yeah. that. But like the way her ascending the stairs is acted is so fucking phenomenal. Yeah. Like you, you don't, you could literally not be paying attention to the movie at all. (laughs) Right. And then read those footsteps and be like, I know how she feels right now. Right. Like it's, it's remarkable. Yeah. Uh, Um, It's magical. I, it really is. There is on the DVD. There's an, uh, an interview with, uh, Nakadai, uh, yeah, I saw that. I watched that. I where, did watch that as well. Which, uh, one, it's got a lot of great information about him and 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 the film here. Uh, but he he refuses to name it. But he says there's actually only one bar in Ginza where you have to go right. upstairs to get upstairs, to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, especially at this time, like these days. I mean, these days, these sorts of bars occupy floors two through nine yeah. in. Hundreds and hundreds of um, oh, I'm sure. High, you know, not not skyscraper, but like you know, multi level buildings in Japan. Like, like these days, that would not be true anymore. This right. is this is a this is a early nascent Japanese like hostess club era. You know what I mean? Like, it's just getting off the ground in, in this era, right? Um, Especially the era that this is supposed to be about, which is the 1950s, not the 1960s, right? It's like it's from the 1960s, but the right. the the nominal date of the story is somewhere in the 1950s, right? It's being released in 1960, January 5th, 1960, in fact, right? So and I, not... but I would say that I would argue yeah. that probably the time period being depicted is somewhere more like 1955 right. or something yeah. like that. Yeah, not not, not just... that long after occupation's over, right? Basically. Right. So is. The story of a woman who is in a situation where she needs to be working to support herself, but is rapidly approaching the end of that being viable uh, because of uh, cultural forces. Um, She's going to be too old to be considered beautiful enough to do this work. Um, Yeah, she would have to become the proprietor rather than just... Yeah, the mama song. Yeah. So that's she comes up with a a couple different plans throughout. One is to become the proprietor of her own place, uh, but she doesn't want to. She wants to do it in a way that's not 
not her selling herself more. So she she decides right. to sell subscriptions to the bar future. Essentially, essentially shares uh, to right. her to her uh, highest uh, her richest uh, customers already. And uh, that doesn't work out. And then she uh, decides maybe she needs to get married. And that well, doesn't to, work out in a lot of right. different ways. <laughs> well, like, let's uh, to be clear, though, the reason part of the reason that doesn't work out is because she fundamentally does not like this work. Right. And part of the reason that her subscription, her shares in the new bar thing doesn't work out is because she, to a certain extent, doesn't want to pursue it whole right heartedly right. because she it's just not a thing she actually wants. Yeah, she doesn't actually really. want it to work. Right. And, and we as an audience know that. Like right. even before she tells us that, we see it because every step of the way her acting is so clear and clean that you're like, "Oh, this is a very this person is very reluctant to do this." Right. Is doing this but doesn't really want to do this. Right. And uh, you know, she she, in a way, is old school, uh, traditional values. Uh, she doesn't want to sleep around, um, which is something the younger women involved in this work are suggested to be more frequently doing. But I, you know, that's always the suggestion that that is a change in this culture, I don't think is fair. <laughs> no, and I and I would say that like even the movie itself acknowledges that she has a very pers- particular perspective, right? That is not necessarily like representing even old culture, right? Because keep in mind that like anything like this would be an extension of very very old Japanese culture with regards to the way that entertainment works, right? I mean, we're talking about like a city that you know hosted basically the. The, the Edo era of hostess, you know, the Edo era version of hostess clubs being, you know, geisha and things like that. Yeah. And then also lots of night. There were nightclubs in Edo era, basically, is what I'm saying. And so this is not new work in right. Japan by any means. It's a new style, which makes her less, makes her almost unique in love of herself. She's represented as being fundamentally unique. Yes. Uh, which I think is important because, like, it, it it does lower the amount of judgmentalness. That's not a word, I don't think. It but it makes be. the movie less judgmental of those women. Those, right. The movie, generally speaking, at least as far as I could tell, didn't seem to be... It judged certain ones of them because they were particularly not... Didn't seem like good people. Well... You know what I mean? Like... Um, I, I bring up specifically... I forget uh, I forget the name of the character, but the, the one who... What's her name? Are you speaking of Junko, the one who watches her apartment? Yes, yeah. Junko is portrayed as being particularly not awesome. Yeah. Uh, but that is particular to Junko and not Junko's lifestyle. Right. It is, I think it is, it is because of who Junko is as a person. This movie does, um, for you know, it's got a predominantly female cast, supporting mostly supporting because we spend so much time with our main character. Uh, but it does a very good job of differentiating in personality, uh, all of those different people. And in portraying everyone as complicated, round people. Yeah. And particularly particularly Mama, who, you know, we... She's not all bubblegum and and rainbows, right? She... No, yeah. 
her her mom asks her for money uh, to keep her brother out of jail, and she says, "No, I can't because that would require me selling selling off my lifestyle stuff, and I can't do that." Uh, and then the nephew needs money in order to walk after having polio, and the movie ends unclear whether or not that that's still on the table, right? right. Whether or not that money's going to be given. Or if it's even well, that, it's all very unclear because, like, how far did we get down the road with the with the with the fake husband, the right. fake fiance? Like, right. we don't. We're left with a lot of things up in the air yeah. when we get into uh, this or right. to the end of this movie. It's just very hard. to And she is she is left. You know, her ultimate hope through the third act is that a married businessman will leave his wife and marry her instead. Uh, and that that's a weird one too because like I don't know that 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 particular scene because you never she does but mainly because he sort of pseudo rapes her. Uh, it's very it's the movie is not super clear about that, but like that's also something because I think she had decided she wanted to sleep with him, but wouldn't be able to do it if she weren't drunk. That was the right, read and, I that, got and from that's that. a, it's very that scene is very confusing because like. Yeah. When you do things like show a glass rolling on the floor right. after somebody said no, no. Right, right. You kind of are telegraphing rape, but you're not necessarily. And well, you know whatever, what I mean? her, whatever her intentions were before she got drunk, uh, she is not consenting in the moment. Right. And the fact that exactly. she got herself drunk, even, even if I'm reading it right, and she got herself drunk because she knew she'd say no if she were sober. Uh, right. You know, that is still not. She's still basically not he, able to. He give has done a bad anyway. thing. It's a big problem. Yeah, he, he has, and yes. it's it's problematic only from the standpoint that like the way the rest of the story unfolds after that, it's just it's a very confusing scene. It just is. Um, right, and he has but, like, to know what she wants from this situation, and then he gets what. And then he he's wants, taking and advantage of that as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then tells it's, her he's got to leave. And not just leave the apartment, leave the city, uh, right? That like that whole like I didn't get a chance to tell you last night. Oh, what a like he's yeah. a fucking scumbag. Let's right. be very clear. Right. That part is not up for discussion. He, yeah, he's a scumbag. The question is just what her feelings are. We don't know a hundred percent. She does after that commit to the idea that maybe she can get him to leave her, leave his family. Um, and then she sort of power moves him at the end there, which is pretty rad. Uh, I don't, it, at least as far as I, like, that was my interpretation of her delivering presents to him yeah. on the train. <laughs> I was like, I don't think that was to get them to break up. That was just a. <laughs> yes. That was a, That was just a power move. That was just like, I can fuck your shit up yeah. anytime I want. Right. And I just want you to know that. And I love, I love that uh, the wife obviously knows Oh yeah! What's For going sure. on wholeheartedly, uh, and, and then is kind of nervous about it. Like she doesn't want the kids to open the present yet, like, right? Like just in case she wants to, that that present is going to get opened under extreme supervision, <laughs> right? Right. She'll be opening that present first, and then yes, yeah, and then maybe you'll open it later. Um, speaking of which, the businessman is actually is, he's a you know another phenomenal star who we've seen a lot from. Uh, Mizuyuki Morai, um, he was uh, the main character in Kurosawa's The Idiot. Um, oh, okay, yeah, that's why I thought I recognized yeah. him. Yeah, uh, he's in Rashomon. He's in Rashomon, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
So we've seen him we, a lot. Not quite yeah, as seen him a bunch, not yeah. quite as prolific as. Uh, well, right, because he didn't make one movie yeah. a year for fucking four decades. <laughs> right. So, right. you know. While still somehow maintaining a, a full-fledged stage career where he's starring in Shakespeare productions. Fucking, like, that guy, man. How like, not could I have it, that career? Like, I, because, like, that's the way, like, I my perception is that is the way literally every Japanese actor who's, like, an actor, like, who's real hardcore about it, that's their career. Yeah. It's wild. Like, think about how many parts at any given time he must have had in his head at any given time. <laughs> right. It's fucking wild, man. Like, he's got a stage career. He's got a television career. <laughs> I mean, it's not his television career is not that much, but, like, it still existed. Right. It's it's wild, man. Like, how could you do that? I mean, of course, we're not, we, we need to be careful about uh, Masayuki, about he... he passed away in 1973 so you know right. I mean, he, he can't movie still be here for a while yeah but and, yeah. yeah um and he was probably within the studio system much more overtly. yeah which does limit how many movies they make because yeah. especially if you're pretty famous they it seems like from what i've seen what we've seen demonstrate is the famous the more famous you get within the studio system the more they lock you down in terms of like not yeah. making you star in four films a year Right, you know what I mean? Because they like they want to make sure you you count, right? Like if you're famous and popular, oh, they don't necessarily spam you. They make sure that like, oh, this is his movie for the year, and people go see it because he's in it. Yeah, I'm looking. He he actually made six films this or four films this year, uh, according to uh, to Wikipedia. Um, And it looks like it looks like most of the Kurosawa stuff he was in was when Kurosawa was with Toho. And this film's with Toho, uh, but this same year he was actually in uh, Konichiwa's. Uh, yeah, say that again, uh, Konichiwa's uh, her brother, which is a uh, a different studio, uh, Dai. Uh, so maybe he's not in the studio system, but he does seem to be mostly doing. Uh, yeah, I mean he's certainly less prolific over the years. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know if we'll ever end up watching her brother, but. Uh, just a thing I just read about it that is very interesting. Uh, uh, Ichikawa was inspired by the photography for John Huston's 1957 six adaptation of Moby Dick. That is wow. That is that is his uh, one of his that inspirations for the film. Specific thing <laughs> yes. in the world. Yes. I I love that. So like I. I'm kind. I over the years, I've become more and more of a fan of Japanese directors. Yeah, not necessarily because of partially because of their work. I've I've come to really love the work of a lot of Japanese directors as we've watched more and more what they've done. Uh, but also because of the weird idiosyncrasies that seem to be true about all of them. Like every single one of them has some thing. That if you just described it about a regular person on the street, you'd be like, that person's a little weird, huh? <laughs> yes. Like, well, that's just his thing. Like, he never talks like he only whispers in your ears and tells you, yeah, like polite things. Like, well, that's that's and what also uh, inspired by Moby Dick adaptations. What you said about only ever whispering polite things in your ear—that's uh, that's how how uh, Naruse is uh, described in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's his. That's his. <laughs> in his directing style. Yeah. It's like, it's like he, he'll just come up to you. He'll just whisper in your ear, yeah. uh, and like it's not even stage direction. It's like, 
go get him, Tiger. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like <laughs> you're doing great. Uh, it's very interesting, Zabbing. Uh, um, you can just stand still now. Um, just stuff like that. It's really interesting. Uh, I think this is the yeah. best you've ever done at a uh, uh, at the voice that you're always trying to do that makes me hurt. But... That's because I've learned that <laughs> See, that's this worse. kind of microphone. It's always um, worse. I have to do a different voice than I did with the old microphone. This is this is much worse. Uh, it has to do with it has to do with the like how much of my voice gets picked up. Like with the other one, I could just get real close, and because there's yeah. enough bass in my voice naturally, yeah, the ASMR just that would, comes. Whereas this one, I actually have to purposely yeah. focus on having more bass in my voice. Anyway, I think I think what what ultimately means is that your ASMR is much better when you're when you're giving dad affirmations to people. Than yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's not about winning or losing; it's about enjoying the game. Indeed, indeed. Um, one thing I love about this movie and about the direction style, uh, Nakadai talks about how. Uh, they that even in films, even in scenes with two people or more people, uh, they were often filmed individually on screen. And because of that, uh, whereas someone like Kurosawa would take a multi-camera approach and set up four cameras, right. one always trained at one actor, one always trained at another actor, uh, one giving like a broad, which Nakadai says is much more like stage acting because you're not pausing, you're just performing, right? Uh, right, you memorize your scene. Right, you do it together. Yeah, when you do it as many times as you need to do it. Right, would have he would have uh, actors just say all of their lines, right? do all of their parts, and then relight the scene for the other side of the room, and have the person they were talking to do all of their lines, so they weren't actively talking to each other. And on the one hand, that is very weird. <laughs> that is that is a weird way to shoot a movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but also, it plays to the themes of this movie of the isolation, single people on right. camera, Absolutely. even in group sh- in group settings, uh, the separateness, particularly of Keiko and uh, and her her manager, who has a desperate crush on her, and you know, and that's another another time when we don't we don't want necessarily think mama is a perfect person you know she he declares her love for her and she says i hate you <laughs> right yeah yeah could have done that differently and she obviously doesn't hate him she he's a friend but but she, and she doesn't love him particularly in the way he loves her but she doesn't hate him but he says that right. she says that and then he slaps her and you know and then she a, eventually admits that she doesn't love him yeah. or hate him she just right. Right. Then she says she's she, indifferent she to him. Back, and I yeah. think actually that's when he slaps her, uh, if I remember correctly. I'm trying to remember too. I can't uh, can, exactly. I yeah. think actually that. I think that does happen. I think the slap happens before she says that. Maybe that that's like yeah. almost the closing line of that. Like yeah. after that, she just tells him to leave. Right. After she says like, "I don't love you or hate you. We just we know each other too well," or something. Yeah. Which it just kind which is kind of a cop out. She doesn't. Also true. Yes. It. it, it She's just trying to get out of the situation. We de- we see her do that multiple times throughout this movie where, like, she just sort of cooks something up so that she can just escape. Like, she, there's a certain, it, it's interesting, for a movie about somebody being basically fundamentally alone all the time. Like, yeah. Just never, not being able to transcend the boundary between her and other people. Right. 
Even um, with her own family. Right. Right. She's also always trying to escape. Right. She's always trapped. And like the movie is about her trying to escape too. I mean, on a on a on an overall theme, right? Like right. she doesn't like the life she has. She wants to escape this life, but none of the there there essentially she's in a life that she doesn't have a path out of. Right. None of the paths work because all the paths suck. Um and don't suit her well. Um and uh but it, in individual scenes also end oftentimes with her trying to escape yeah. that scene and her somehow trapped in that scene. Uh yeah. even even in times when maybe she shouldn't, like when she chooses to go see the fake uh, fiance's wife, and uh, it's in a vacant lot with pa- uh, yeah. with a power station in the background, uh, but then this woman's son <laughs> and the dogs literally circling. I yeah. love the children the dogs just circling the around them. The dogs and the yeah, kids so circling constantly, keeping her inside, keeping her there. Yeah. Like- uh, a place she has no right to be, shouldn't be, and yet somehow still cannot escape from. Right, and then keep in mind, you get this environment. Like clearly, the the that that man's wife has the upper hand in this environment. Like in terms of like just power, she's at that yeah. person's. Like yeah. Keiko is at that person's house and everything like that. Um, but it's it's very interesting because. That woman, like, that's a very interesting scene because that woman's also, like, per- sort of just apologizing. Like, right. right. Like, it's interesting. It's such an interesting dynamic because, like, that man, like, I, I can't remember the name of any of those characters, unfortunately. Like, I could try to figure it out. but The I, chubby I, guy, we'll call him. Yeah, I don't, I can't even find his name on, oh, uh, Sekine. Yeah. Um, His wife is, like, uh, it, this has happened so many times at this point. That like she feels like she needs to apologize to the person that he's yeah. duped because it's like it's a that's a fascinating dynamic. Yeah. It's really her, really her, fascinating. Her excuse is that he's like a Walter Mitty type, where he's a womanizer, but he just gets lost in his own fantasies. <laughs> right. It's yeah. it's a real wild one. It's yeah. it's like I mean that that person described as a character is fucking just right. off the rails and like it's just a weird character like and in this oh, particular yeah, he's a instance, rampant womanizer who yeah. gets lost in his own womanizing fantasies yeah and stole the neighbor's car for a week <laughs> yeah well is currently stealing the neighbor's car right like it's gone right, right now right. it's like why like why did you just I, like, I don't mama mama's I, seen him more recently than this wife has Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And like and and what I think we become unclear about and I think this is probably the reason why the car is stolen is I think he's part of that lie is he is not a factory owner, right? Right. And so like they presumably don't have a car. Right. Or something along those lines. Oh, absolutely. Right? Like he yeah. stole the car and because he needs a car to Yeah. And and him as a what and cool getting into a whole other thing, right? He is a mirror for what her she and all of her um, coworkers are doing right. Like he puts on a, he creates a fantasy. Right. The, the, the difference is those these women didn't sign up for that fantasy. They don't. They're right. not here for him to create right. a fantasy for them. But that is their job. Actually, is to create a fantasy of companionship. Right. And the guys coming the there know that. Right. Right. Absolutely. Everybody. Everybody's a consenting party in that. Whereas right. he's doing. He's a mirror in in very in very clearly a a Star Trek mirror universe sort of way. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like 
it's one hundred percent opposite because they they're the women at these bars didn't sign up for that. Right. They didn't like come for a fantasy. They came to come come to fucking work. Right. But like um he it is an inter he provides an interesting counterpoint to what she does in that he is the sort of like mirror universe of it. Uh, right. And I think that's very fascinating, right? Right. Um, and and it sucks for her. It made me cry. Like the whole her right. her life story in this movie is just desperately desperately sad. Um it is it is heartbreaking and yeah. multiple times. But he's 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 the mirror image of that in the same way ultimately uh Fujisaki is though too, right? Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Portraying, all, portraying every, all this the men thing. in this are that. Yeah. All the men are that in just different ways, right? Yeah. Yeah, everybody and that's another thing, you know. The we could easily condemn these women as as actresses leading people on in a, you know, well, but they're very clearly not. I mean, like that's which, a, that's which a, one they're that, very that clearly not a dark place, right? That's but, yeah. that's the dark reading of the 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 base. You know, if we sit outside, not this film, but thinking about this culture, that is a very easy read of that culture, right? Right, and it has always been a, yeah. and it is a, it is a, it is one you see a lot in yeah. Western media with regards to this sort of thing, which is quite common throughout. Yeah. Throughout whereas, Asia. Whereas what this movie actually portrays is that these women have their own goals, but are living in a society that means achieving those goals is either impossible or only possible under very specific circumstances that require them to give up something that they want. Right. Well, it requir- that, yeah, it requires them to give agency to right. men to do it. And the, right? they the have to men in this situation men. are the ones putting on masks. Are the ones pretending? Yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, pretending that they offer what these women want, even though even though the situation the situation their jobs these women's jobs is to pretend to offer a thing that these men want. It is these men uh, offering a thing that the women want outside of that job and uh, and not rewarding them for it. Right. Right. Well, and that and that's the very clear thing is like part of it is though is that like part of the understanding of this, especially within Japanese society um, post World War II, but like in other environments too, other countries as well, but especially within post World War II Japanese society, it's very explicitly known by all parties that that is just not on the table. Right. That the thing that like so the women are are putting so the goal is less to put on the appearance that like of what the men want in the sense that like you know there's always that sort of sexual component right right but like that's very explicitly not part of the deal in these situations and that's like so the idea is companionship and the women are absolutely authentically offering companionship right you come into the bar you sit down and they will absolutely be right. your companion they will talk right. to you they will engage you in conversation. They will be your for as long as you're there. They are absolutely right. not even in a fake way. They are your friend. But it's not a there. girlfriend experience. It is not. No, not not right. at all. Like it is. I mean, it, the way I've had it related to me when I've read about it because this is actually a thing I I done a fair. This is always a thing I've been interested in when I, after I got to Japan and have done a decent amount of reading about. Yeah, it's best described as like, what if? It's like. I like I've had it described to me in several different ways in different books, but like imagine a really 
it's like your wife that's not your wife. In the sense that, like, it's meant to be someone who will sit in the bar and drink with you and talk with you and have the have the have the social relationship with you of like a wife, right? That familiarity that comes with that, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a reason why men tend to go to the same bar in Japan every time and meet and sit with the same woman every time. You know what I mean? Because they want to build that companionship type relationship, but without any of the other things that come with marriage, right? right? Like none of the other stuff. It's just that companionship divorced from everything else. Right. Um, and it's, and it's that, they absolutely do provide that. That's a thing they actually provide. They're yeah. not it's not putting on airs, it's a thing they actually provide. Right. Right. It's 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 this compartmentalization of what you want a prostitute is for one compartment. A hostess right. is for absolutely. a different yeah. compartment. A therapist would be for a different compartment, but I right. don't know if, that if any of these were, guys If that were a thing that any of these people would ever go to. <laughs> yeah. Um no, yeah, you're totally right. And and but the thing about it is is that like in that way, the movie makes it quite clear, and, and it's a nice about – one of the interesting things about the movie is the fact that, like, the men are really the fucking liars here. Like, yeah. down to their core, right? Because the things they have on offer are not actually on offer. They are not going to give it. They are not giving it, right? Whereas the women are actually giving the companionship that they – that's you know when you walk into the bar you get that thing that you came to the bar for right which is companionship right whereas the men are mostly in various form different forms leading the women astray right like they're like we've got one who tricks her into believing they're getting married yeah uh, well actually they both do that in some way or another right right, right. and then um but like you know, and then even when we deal with what's his name, um, the manager. Shoot, I close the yeah the what's his name? Um, Goda. No, oh, Goda. Or is it Goda? Is who are it you Goda thinking? Or, what describe the, one the character? Who offers to help her start her bar? Oh, like, I, I think offers that, a million yen. I like, think that's just Goda, to start yeah. her bar. I think so, right? Yeah. Who like very clearly is air quotes offering it, but he's putting like heavy, right. heavy, right requirements on it right you're essentially becoming his mistress so that you can get that money right Right. um and that's that's essentially that's not you know that is a lie in and of itself right because he's air quotes offering it to you that is him trying to move her into a different compartment of this compartment right exactly absolutely and 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 he's not offering it it's right because he's couching it in like i'm just going to give you this money but he's not going to right he's not giving you this money He's buying you. Right. Right. And then even what I was, um, why I thought you were bringing up the manager um, is that, you know, even in his same way, and he, he does a, something that, you know, is very normal today too, of, uh, she thought he was her friend. Right. Yeah. And he thought she was a prospective girlfriend. And the, right. Know, that's a relationship imbalance that, uh, yeah, you know, he. Well, yeah, he essentially pulls the classic, the modern classic of, oh, she friend zoned me. Right. It's like, right. or whatever. It's like, and then she was her never interested it. in you. Right. Yeah, like she was, he is resentful right. for her treatment of him, despite he, he could have at any point in time told her how he felt. Right. And like, neither, none of, none of you would have been in this position. Like, right. 
but he chooses and not wait to, to not, not wait to say that until she's in the most desperate desperate situation she's been in in right. her life. Absolutely, yeah. His his goal is 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 a is one of the darker goals actually, right. in the sense that he's trying to he's waiting for her to be emotionally weak so that he can move in. Right, and he's also. Um, he essentially he doesn't want to break his own illusion, right? Like right. he believes he knows rightly that if he ever brings it up, she'll tell him that you're just my friend, right? Like which is what and and he he's willfully avoiding discovering that so he can maintain this fantasy that that there's a potential for a relationship there, right? Like I mean, that's that's always the weird dark cloud that comes with air quotes friend zone right it's like you she always thought of you as a friend and you didn't break that illusion for yourself that's your own damn fault right like you could have at any point brought it up and then known the answer there right like it's just yeah he's he's a he's a dark one he's real dark and he slaps her for it and in that regard with the exception that these are all obviously professional actors and actresses uh, aesthetically and storyline wise, this almost feels like a Preston film in a lot of ways. Yes, yes, it does. Yeah, uh, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, where you know there is there is not a lot of fundamental difference between our main character here and our main character in uh, uh, what's the last Preston film we watched? Not Al Hazar Balthazar, uh, though. That's no, that too, is not but, the most uh, recent one. The, uh, um. I know what you're talking about. What was it? Goodness. Machette. I'm now looking at the... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Machette. Um, yeah. Where it's, you know, a put-upon person who is in a bad position and keeps... The universe keeps dangling a way out in front of her. You know, now right. with, with Machette and, and Balthasar and, and Bresson's films, that uh, that put-upon person is mostly uh, 100% a... Uh, an innocent, and Mama is a right. quite a one hundred percent innocent well, and, here. You know, and she that's is a round Bresson and films, real human being, right? Right. Bresson's films are very are highly ar- right. uh, allegorical, that's, that's, whereas yes. this movie is not. This movie Bresson, is about a person. Right. Bresson is say, interested in saying something broader philosophically or uh, or religiously, whereas this movie is much more of a you know Italian new wave, and it just wants to present yeah. real life. A real situation. Yeah, absolutely. And and is very interested in talking about people, like mm-hmm. what people's lives are like. Very specifically, um, Mama San's who she is, but like right. yeah, you there's roundedness to the characters in this you just don't get in Bresson films right. at all. But it does have that same sort of like it does definitely have that like, well, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna allegorically do the tri- we're gonna do the punishment of, of Christ in, in this course, person right now. Of course, another marked difference between this and a Bresson film is that our characters endure in this film, whereas in Bresson film they end up dying at the end. That's <laughs> Well, right, yeah, that's that's true. Like one of the one of the more fast I I fucking love the ending of this movie. Yeah. Because it paints a picture that is is still to my mind, rare in films, which is like the world doesn't just fucking stop when the film stops. The world is present, right? Like it's always rolling. It's always moving. Right. And like she climbs that stair, those stairs and she does the thing she's been doing for a while now. And like, 
we don't know what's going to happen, but like that's because we that's what life is, right? Like we don't know what's going to happen to her. We have no way to know. And I love it. It's it's sad, it's heartbreaking. Like she just goes back to doing the thing that she very clearly fucking hates. Um but is good at and that's it. Right. It's the the ending of this movie is just so fucking good. Um yeah. I I I I'm I'm in love with this film. Right. Like it's so so good. I mean, did it make me cry? Yes it did. <laughs> Absolutely. Um and that's always a little rough. Um <laughs> but like it's just so well done. I just I mean, it I in many ways, as we've gone through Japanese film in this collection, I thought I kind of had a grasp on like all the different sort of possible. Right, but we keep you know, we, we keep discovering something new in Japanese. Yeah, film something wildly. I mean, like 1960, and this is this is very clearly the most like um, the most. I, now I can't figure out how do I want to say this. Like I can't process the words correctly. Like is very clearly the most female empowerment focused, it, like in a real dark way, right? Because her life sucks; right. she's not happy. But it, this is about her, and it's not about anybody else. And 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 it paints her in a very like she's. This might be the most round characters we've ever encountered. Yeah. In a Japanese film thus far. Right. Including some of the best, including amazing films, okay? Like, just absolutely amazing films. But, uh, like, I mean, even some of the ones that really, really impressed, right? Like, um, uh, like if you think about Ikiru or something like that, where, like, yeah, those are really interesting characters, but they still have a certain level of two-dimensionality to them because of the way Kurosawa directs and the way Kurosawa tells his stories, tend to focus very very intensely on the point that he's trying to make whereas this feels more like we found this woman who's in this shitty situation and then we just recorded her life it has that feeling of authenticity that that i don't we haven't really encountered a lot in japanese film yeah um because i'm trying to think of other directors like ozu doesn't do films like this his are very clearly they're interesting they're very good but they're very clearly staged too right right like they feel they feel like a story right and I think that's what does it for me in this film is that this doesn't doesn't feel exactly like a story right it has that you mentioned it be feeling a little bit like a documentary and it kind yeah, of does at right? some point like yeah it, yeah but I think that lends to it a certain feeling of like it has this element that feels like you're just watching a very intense part of a normal person's life. Yeah. Uh, and just, we just, ha- I don't feel like we've encountered that before. I, uh, you know, I, 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 I mean, in, ja- in Japanese films specifically, but. not, not something that's so Frank and Italian neorealism about it. Right. Um, not exactly. You know, we we've certainly seen people who try to make more rounded characters and more interesting things. Oh yeah, no, I, I don't want I don't want to accuse yeah. the other the other directors right, we've had. Right, their right, their right. Char- characters are round, but the characters are very clearly characters. Right. 
Whereas these don't necessarily feel like characters. Right. Um, and that's I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. I, I'm really... I love this film like, yeah. a lot. It's pretty obvious, I think. But. Now, maybe maybe we'll be surprised again next week uh, when we watch uh, another film from Japan at the same era, uh, 1959, uh, Konichikawa's Fires on the Plane, which is about a uh, a Japanese about soldier yeah. in World War II stationed in the Philippines who gets tuberculosis and is turned out and goes on a sort of heart of darkness journey through uh japanese forces in the philippines uh which i look forward to i haven't watched it yet i uh, yeah me too but, uh, i'm very excited about this but yeah i think that'll be that'll be something new and interesting right and, and and i'm excited i mean like i'm always i just i've learned i mean basically what i would say is that my my experience with italian neorealism has been mixed yeah um I've enjoyed some of them a lot, and I've not liked some of them, right? Depending on just how the way how they're done right. and things like that. Whereas this one is like somehow this is my perfect Italian neorealism film. Does that make sense? Right. This Japanese <laughs> this Japanese movie, yeah, of, it, done in that style is the is kind of my perfect one. Yeah. Uh. And and some of it has to do with the subject matter, which is something I find very interesting and, and like learning about. Um, some of it has to do with like our main characters just so fucking well acted. Right. Like, holy shit is she good at this. Like it is And again, something that separates it from from you know neorealism is that these are right, professional right. is the fact that these are all professional actresses actors and actresses. Yeah. And but like and that makes you wonder, right? Because my perfect Italian neorealism film is one that also features professional actresses and actors. Yeah. Um, because I think part of what makes this work is that, like, um, we we somehow split the the divide there where, like, you know, when we get into Italian neorealism, a problem that I've often run into is that, like, the non-professional actors either overact or underact and half the time, you know, if you're dealing with somebody like, you know, if you're dealing with your... You know, I'm thinking like somebody like Bresson or somebody like that. Uh, you get into that like I'm not going to teach you how to act at all. Right. Like, right. Just stare blankly at the screen, please. Um, now, of and, course, and let the audience intuit your feelings. What we know about Narusse's style like that, is yeah. is very much also non-acting in its very right. <laughs> in a different way Absolutely. to Bresson. But, the, but right. Presumably, presumably, his actors and actresses are not just sitting there reciting their lines. They're still getting playback. They're getting. They're, they have someone off screen reading the other lines at the very least. Or, or well, actually, um, but, what is it? Um, what is it? Um, who uh, in the interview? Yeah, they mentioned like the sight line thing. It seems like they are just reading their lines. I don't think they're actually yeah, reading it. Maybe they are. Yet. Um, but they're, uh, they were talking about like a sight line, like a, somebody cut a piece of cardboard out <laughs> yes. and like As a big put eye. On a stick and be like, look over here. Yeah. Um, and they got yelled at for it, <laughs> yes. but, um, yes. I, which I love But like the thing about it is, is that like, these are all professional actors and actresses. So like the difference being that like, Naruse doesn't, Naruse doesn't have to teach them how to act. Right. They're all professional actors and actresses. So that, that like not. Not giving a lot of stage direction behavior is different when you're dealing with professional actors. You're, you're trusting them uh, to make choices then. 
Whereas when you don't give direction to like non-professional actors, actors and actresses, I don't know what that is. Right. I still don't know what that is. That's like stare blankly at this camera and a lot <laughs> and 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 assume rightfully so that your audience will feel a need to fill that void with emotion. Right. Right. They're they're not wrong. Let me get let me be very clear here. They're not wrong. Like the audience needs to fill that void. It can't just you can't just watch a film and not imbue those characters with emotion. It's just that I've realized I like this a lot better. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that's that's fair. Like even you know even some of my favorite Italian uh, neo realism. Um, you know, like recently we watched Bicycle Thieves, which is a phenomenal movie, and, which is great. And, yeah, yeah, it's excellent. Yeah, but it definitely, um, it definitely feels different having, you know, the professional Japanese actors know what they're doing, right? And and one reason, one reason Bresson and and you know the neo realists rejected professional actors was because of artifice, right? And right. And using professional actors, but I just think that maybe it's just the the nature of Japanese stage acting. Maybe is that these these guys don't. I don't feel an artifice in this movie either, right? Well, and that and that's actually really fascinating because uh, I. Oh, this is going to get real. We're going to get real inside baseball here, okay? <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually do a we do a lecture in one of my in one of my classes is on Japanese entertainment and and the way all that works. And if you've ever watched a Japanese television show, holy shit, the the overacting. Oh, it, I'm sure it, there's it, very much artifice. Man, on they they're yeah. they, they fucking chew that scenery so hard. Like, it's lucky that they don't pop out of your fucking screen. Of course, that's uh, it's bad. It's real bad. But like, that's when the you nature of a soap pro- opera, though. Or a, or right, a, that's absolutely yeah. true. Um, but they go hardcore on it, and that and a lot of that traces back to traditional Japanese stage acting styles, which depended almost entirely on f- facial expressions. Right. Because many, there are many, you know, depending on which traditional type you're talking about, uh, if you're talking about, like, something like no, yeah. then you've got basically nothing on stage at all. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it, if you're talking about kabuki, it's kabuki is like a soap opera meets... WWE meets like <laughs> right, right. It's just fucking no, wild right. ass shit. Just people doing nutso nonsense. Like, like if you ever want to, if you ever want to enjoy an afternoon, go look up the plot of one of the more intense Kabuki plays, and it's like you're like through the first act, and you're like, holy shit! Like all that <laughs> happened in one act. What's gonna happen for the other ones? Um, but like, and that's all. That's a lot of. That's a lot of scenery chewing too. Uh, but where you when you get into like modern movie acting, especially when you get into the more professional actor, like the more the real high end directors dealing with high end actors, you get into this real deep subtlety. And and being very clear, like somebody like Kurosawa also gets that out of his actors. Yeah, but someone like it also depends on what they're doing too, right? No, because right, obviously they're they're trying different things, and Mifune in High and Low is subtle and amazing. Mifune as right. a samurai is over the top, is eyes wide, off the rails, off yeah, the rails, yeah. yeah. Well, but that's that's also, but like what, one of the things that Kurosawa gets out of Mifune is that that like he can do the whole range, and right. so even within the same movie, he'll go from that very mild mannered, very calm to just explosive in one film, right? 
Like he'll get him to cover the whole right. range. Um, it's just a difference because this is very much just like focused on real life, right? Like even something about like something like High and Low, which I love. It's it's on my list of best movies I've ever seen. Right. Is is very clearly a story. Right. It is it is a crime drama. Um, Ikiru is a different kind of thing. It is more focused on real life, but it is still yeah. it's still a drama. Whereas this doesn't necessarily it, feel per se like a drama. Right. And again, that's an, another thing for our filming style. Uh, as as we already said, Kurosawa right. that's true, had yeah. multi camera. Uh, his actors felt like they were in a stage play. Whereas with this, it is very much not a stage play. It's disconnected. It's something very different. I mean, it, it and it it just works. It, like it's a it's a sort of perfect confluence, right? Like, yeah, the directing style, everything feeds into that isolation, that loneliness, and you just get this real strong. You feel the feelings of this movie right. really intensely, right. and that's one, you know, one also very interesting thing. You know, we we talk about method acting and method directors. Uh, whereas someone like Bresson might uh, might separate his cast or or degrade, well, Bresson would never degrade one of his main characters, but or main actors. Um, but uh, we have encountered directors who would do yeah. that. It's just not Bresson's just uh, not that one. Nerusa does it very politely and just in the nature of the way he's shooting his film, keep everyone separated and uh, right. and disconnected and yeah, and acting to a wall. Yeah, yeah, that that description of like, oh yeah, he'll just have you read all of your lines of dialogue. He'll have you perform all of your lines of dialogue from this conversation first, right? And then we'll switch over, relight, and shoot all the lines of dialogue from the other person's half of the conversation. Right. Like, but like, and and um, they, you know, in the interview, right? We talk about it, but like that that style that could that could fuck up so hard, right. so easily, right? Like, um, you know, uh, Nagadai talks about it, like how confident you'd have to be in your style right. and your ability to do that. And because like, think about it, right? Like if you're filming that, how do you know which is the good take Right. when they're not feeding off each other? You just have to know, right? Like right. you just have to watch it and be like, yep, that was the good one. Because like, there's no, there's no interplay there. There's no way to know right. that they're going to mesh unless you just know, which is fucking wild. It's a wild thing to be like that that good and that confident in your ability to do that is but it also it also shows a a confidence in your actors and your crew true true absolutely that I yeah. think makes them want to be their best as well I, absolutely that's definitely true uh also it's important to bear in mind just how many films not to say made yeah even by the time we're right. getting to right. 1960 yeah. whole Holy shit! Nagadai talking about his ability to edit in his mind based on stuff he hasn't even filmed yet is uh, not might all that have to do with the fact that right. that he's probably a hundred and fifty films deep by the time we get to nineteen sixty. Right. Right. I'm just looking at his filmography. Uh, it's it starts in nineteen thirty. We don't have access to nearly everything pre nineteen thirty four because they're all gone. They don't exist. Yeah. Uh, but from 1935, I mean, we're talking four films a year yeah. from 1930 until 1960. So, yeah, that's a lot. He's prolific. Yeah. But, but you know, like, I guess you'd be pretty confident, you know, if you had done something that much for that long, 
I guess you'd be pretty confident at it too, right? Yeah. And we're actually we're at the tail end of his career, huh? Like by the time we he 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 passed away in 1969. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually not that many films after this one. There's only somewhere in the neighborhood I'm going to say I'm looking at this and just eyeballing it like 12. Yeah. Not even. Yeah, about 12 after this, which is not a lot. I mean, we're we're at his I guess his peak, right? Like I mean, we're watching the pinnacle of 30 years of doing this, right? Right. Uh so that that's a f- it's fascinating to think of it that way, but like he it's just it's very very good. Yeah. Uh we will not see anything else from Neruse. He's got a box set of silent films in uh in the Eclipse collection, but this is his only Criterion released film. Uh, wow. Which really? Is, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of wild. Mhm. I can't believe this is the only good movie he ever made. <laughs> Almost certainly not. And the Eclipse stuff, I'm sure, are great. But considering we didn't see run across anyone calling this his masterpiece, uh, it it probably isn't all that out of the ordinary for movies he made either. So right. I'm, well, um, Nagadai mentions another film by him that that Nagadai was also in and talks about how much he liked that as well. Yeah. I don't remember which one it was. I don't remember what it was uh, either. I mean, I I have a, an interest in finding out more just because, like, if this one's this good, yeah. like, I I gotta imagine some of the other ones are just totally awesome too. Like, I mean, if they're all because he even described, uh, not gonna even describe that other ones. This is a thing for not to say is like focusing on the sort of lives of women in Japan, right? right. Like, is a thing for not to say and. I can only imagine that there are other ones are probably worth watching too. I, um, cause like I, it is thus far been fairly rare for us to see a Japanese film that focuses on, on a woman in this way. Yeah. Um, probably the closest we would get would be one of the, um, earlier, was it earlier Ozu films? The, uh, what's the name? Like Tokyo story or something would be, would be, uh, in the same, vein right like it, it but in a different way right like because that's ozu has that sort of desire to tell the story of like ozu's storytelling especially in something like tokyo story is different in the sense that he's sort of making an argument for return to cl- like traditional family style and the values of that whereas i would say that like in some ways um not to say is making less of an argument in it, like he's not trying to prove that some way of life is better. Uh, there's obviously a bias and an argument within the story, right? Because it it's demonstrates very clearly how shitty life is for women in this time trying to just do what they want to do, right? Yeah. But it it lacks the it, it, Ozu's film, especially at least Tokyo Story, thinking specifically because that that also fo- focuses on a leading lady. Um, in a in a somewhat similar life position too. In a similar, yeah, yeah, exactly. But but Oz's film very much makes very is very clearly a coherent argument for something, right? Like has a sort of mi- goal built into it. Whereas I I I'm not sure that that this movie has is as goal oriented, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a fascinating movie. I'm so glad we watched it. You know, we've obviously we've seen other lower class stories out of Japan, right? 
Yeah. But we haven't we haven't really with a you know, we had we had those two uh Suzuki films that focused on women. Um Right. Yeah, but they're yes. Suzuki they, films. They focused on such, will, women in, in the way that a Suzuki film would focus on right. women, which is in the same way that Suzuki films focus on everything, which right. is fucking wild. It just turned up to 11. Maybe, what drugs am I taking yeah. when I made this movie kind of question? Yeah. I love them, but I love them for totally different reasons. This week we've been talking about When a Woman Ascends the Stairs from 1960, directed by Mikio Naruse. Uh, next week we kick off a pair of uh, Kon Ichikawa films with Fires on the Plain, uh, followed by the Burmese Harp in two weeks. Uh, those are our first narrative Kon Ichikawa films. We had previously watched his uh, documentary on the 1964 Tokyo Olympiad, uh, which was highly enjoyable. Yes. Um, yes, I loved it very much. Yeah, so we look forward to seeing seeing actually narrative films from him as opposed to his documentary. Uh, not that his documentary wasn't narrative. He, he, he put some very interesting narratives in that documentary film. Too, yeah, I but, mean, he did as much narration as you can yeah, do with, yeah, with that, yeah. basically. Uh but yeah, look forward to that. Thank you once again for listening to Lost Criterion. I am, as always, Liam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Otari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of WithTwoBrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at JonathanHape.bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash lost in criterion. We'd appreciate it.